screen. Let's get through only windows. Okay, hello everyone. Hello friends, welcome to the Chagura. We are on our last week here on the second to last class of the year. And we're excited to have with us our Rosh Bet Midrash, Senior Rabbi of the S&P, Rabbi Joseph Dweck, for a question and answer session with questions you guys sent in. Uh, while this year at the Chabura is coming to an end, we're excited for our new program, uh, which we have uh, recently launched. So make sure to check that new curriculum out and make sure to join. And membership to the Chabura offers you access to our exclusive weekly classes, participation in our journals and books, and our international network of students and teachers. Uh, most importantly, though, membership helps support us and ensures that we're able to continue our hard work spreading and making accessible, relevant, and cutting-edge Torah, and specifically the vision of the classical Sephardi approach. Uh, we're a nonprofit organization, and all money generated goes back uh, to our programming. Uh, so even if you don't see yourself participating in all the features of membership, uh, you would still be supporting us and supporting cutting-edge Torah. So with that, thank you so much, everyone, for joining. Thank you so much, everyone, who will be listening afterwards. And Chacham, thank you so much for being with us. It's always a pleasure, and the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Rav Ohad. Okay, so uh, for some reason, hold on, give me one second. I'm just going to see how I can manage these uh, windows here. Um, okay, so I'm going to have to do it this way. Uh, first of all, I want to thank everybody for taking some time to uh, to be here tonight and to or this afternoon or evening, wherever you are. Um so I was asked to close the Chabura uh, year with a Q&A. And we have um, some questions that people sent in. Uh, some of them are repeat. Uh, and some of them, in all honesty, I don't quite understand. So I'm not sure who is, just in terms of the actual language of the question, which is unfortunate because sometimes you hear a question and you want to kind of clarify what exactly a person is asking. So I may, I'm going to leave some of those for the for the end and I may end up, you know, asking it. I don't know if any, some of these people are on. It looks like some of them may or may not be, but regardless, I'll put it out there. And uh, if there is anybody, you know, who's asking the question, who's actually on and wants to help clarify the question, I'll try to. To answer it, I'm not answering all of the questions because some of the questions I I don't think uh, are best to answer in this in this um, setting. Um, but I, but I will do my best to to be able to answer to the best of my ability. And of course, you know, I'm certainly open to uh, you know questions to my answers. So uh, I, I'm in. I'm going in no particular order, but what I will do is I'll read the question and, and offer an answer to the question. So the first, the first question, and I will say if I can, who it is that it comes from? Unless it is, uh, unless it's anonymous, and some of them are anonymous. Okay, so this question is from Freddie Gronsfeld, who is currently in Alon Shavut. My dear Freddie. So Freddie asks, Harambam writes in Shmona Perakim and Chodeot that one should try to make all of his traits. Freddie writes mediocre. I don't think that's exactly the right word. Mediocre means not very good. It's it's poor or average. Um, rather, Harambam says that they, the traits should be balanced and not extreme, right? So he writes, not extreme. Do you think this includes Chokhmah and wisdom? Should we avoid getting too wise or smart? So I, this is a very interesting question to me because one could... Uh, it's, and it's a good question, I think. Not, I'm not going to start valuing. I see. I shouldn't have done that. I'm not going to start valuing all the questions. But I like. I think this is a good question. <laughs> and it interested me. It intrigued me. Because one might think that Chochmah is not a da, according to Rambam, right? That it's not one of the da'ot. Right, Chokhmah is something perhaps that we acquire, we build, and so on. It's maybe different than anger, or you know, or uh, compliance, or you know, stinginess, or you know, whatever the case may be. But the truth of the matter is that Harambam does consider this to be a da, not in Hilchot Deot, but he writes about it in Hilchot Teshubah. And I'll, I'll read to you what it is that Harambam writes if I can find it. Um, let's see here. Yes, so. Harambam in Hilchot Teshubah writes in Halakha Bet the following. He says, Al ya'avor b'machshabatcha davar zeh sh'omrim tippeshe umot ha'olam v'rov golmei b'nei Yisrael sh'akadosh baruchu gozer al-dam t'chilat b'riyato l'tzadik o'rasha. 
It's a well-known Rambam. Rambam says that one, it's interesting the language over here, and actually we'll come back to this language for another question that was asked, but he says, It shouldn't cross your mind, literally, is what that means. This thing that the, the ignorant people of the world, meaning the, the rest of the world, and the general population of Israel, right? That what? That God decrees upon a person before they're born to either be at Sadiq or Rasha. He says, that's not, that's not the case. And he says, Every single person can be at Sadiq like Moshe Rabbeinu, or Rasha like Yerovam. And then the next thing he says is, O Hacham, O Sachal. A person can choose to be a Tzadik or Rasha, or a person can choose to be a Hacham or a Sachal. He can be an educated and intelligent person, like a, a, a learned person, or he can be an ignorant person. O Rahman or Achzari. It could be merciful, or it could be, be mean. Kedai or Shuai. It could be stingy, or it could be, you know, uh, give all of his money away. And then he says the following, And so too all the other de'ot, which would imply that these, the list that he just listed, are de'ot, right? And so too with all the other de'ot. And in these de'ot, he talks about chokhmah or sikhlut, that a person might be wise. Or So that's the first thing that I'll say. It seems that Harambam brings it into this world of de'ot. But at the same time, um, one has to recognize, you know, what it is that Harambam might be, might be, you know, talking about with regards to this. So the first thing is, you know, we know that there are people that are per- perhaps more prone to, you know, quick learning than others and so on. But I do think, to answer uh, Freddie's question, I don't think that there is this being too smart issue, right? In other words, it's not that, I don't think that's an issue of a person learning too much, qua learning too much, but there is, there are things that one has to worry about in terms of the balance that Harambam, Harambam suggests in Ilkhot Deot. And that is how it is that a person amasses knowledge or the, or the, uh, the priority that a person puts in one's life in terms of amassing knowledge. And, and that is important because uh, well, I'll, I'll read you a pasuk in uh, in um, Kohelet. The pasuk in Kohelet says, "This is in Kohelet Zayin Ted Zayin." The first part of this pasuk is a more well-known part of the pasuk. It says, "Al tehit tzaddik harbe." Right? Shlomo Amir is saying, "Don't be exceeding tzaddik." Right? hakam yoter, and don't be Exceeding or more than necessary, hacham. Lama tishomem. Why should you destroy yourself? Right? <laughs> why should you be destroyed? Which is very, very cryptic pasuk. Now I'll read you what the Ibn Ezra says about it, which I think is telling. The Ibn Ezra says on that pasuk. He says, "Imit palalta min aboker va'da'ayret fititane vehadomelahem tishomem." Right? He says, "If you were to sit and pray." from morning till night, right? These are seemingly positive things to do, right? That's why he's choosing it, right? You sit and you pray all day from Bokedarev, or you fast all the time, Tishomem, you will fall apart. V'hainyan, what does it mean that you'll fall apart, says the Ibn Ezra? Tasur miderech hayishuv. You will pull yourself away from the manner in which civilization lives. Kemoshiasu, so he talks about how people do this. Now, that is an issue. And that is essentially exactly what it is that Harambam is talking about when he talks about the De'ot, that a person becomes too extreme and therefore imbalanced in terms of their own humanity and their own capacity to be able to lead a balanced life. So in that framework, right, as the way that that Pasuk is saying, the way that the Ben Ezra points, points it out, is... Uh, is I think what it, what is included in that. And I think that Harambam would say the same thing, right? So for example, if a person simply dedicates oneself to study for the sake of study, this we can talk about Torah Lishma, 
right? But I'll show you, the, the Gemara says something very interesting about Torah Shema. But if a person is doing it simply for the state, for the sake of study, um, then, and they, they close themselves into a library or into a place of learning, or for that matter, a bit midrash, without engaging in a balanced life, right? In a way that's living, that according to Harambam, I would suggest, yes, is the same as any other, other deot being extreme. And that is why, for example, the Hachamim say, Lo hamidrash haikar, The learning is not the goal. It's the deed that is meant to come from the learning. That's the goal. So now one can say, well, if the deed is fed by the learning, and Harambam does write that, right? Harambam writes, Hamidrash kodem Of course, the study always has to precede what it is that we do, because how is a person supposed to know how to behave and act if a person doesn't study and understand? I mean, even the fact that you quoted the Rambam means that you have to learn something in order to be able to know how it is that I'm supposed to to act and be able to be balanced. So to sum up the answer so we don't consume the entire thing with Freddie's question, which I, I was, like I said, intrigued by the question. Yes, it is possible to be too extreme even in the amassing of of knowledge and wisdom, because the amassing of knowledge and wisdom is not something that is meant to be done in its own right. Now, it is is true that if I am trying to live my best life, right, if I'm trying to be able to achieve the greatest potential that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave me, deep and broad study is important, right? it, It requires a great deal of study indeed, and it may require years that a person dedicates to being able to study and understand. But if it is study in a, in a sense that it is imbalanced, and what is the imbalance here? If it's imbalanced in the point, in the sense that the study ends up taking over the life, right? And that person then is not living life. Then that's not balanced. And that is a problem. And that's why the hachamim say the things that they do. Lo hamidrash ha'ikar right? Al hakem yoter, right? Be careful about what the the chokhmah that you amass? What's your ter? Your ter than what? It doesn't say what they want. When it's exceeding, when it is beyond the pale of what is appropriate for living a thriving, strong, robust life. Now, to live a thriving, strong, robust life, the amount of study might be a great deal, and that still may very well be balanced because it's what a person requires in order to be able to live their life. But if it is no longer feeding the living uh, of life then yes, I think it is possible for a person to uh, to tilt the scales in the wrong direction with regards to that. Uh, but again, in sensitivity of time, I mean, obviously you can imagine we can give an entire shiur on that. And so maybe we will one day, I don't know. But nonetheless, that's the, uh, that's the all of this is going to be very, very slim answers to what could be opened up to much more. Okay, the next question is, and this question came twice. So it came once from Anonymous, uh, and then again, in a different way, let's see if I can find it here in my uh, Excel spreadsheet of questions. Mm. Yeah, let's see. Uh, this one is from Mars Shalom, right? So Mars Shalom was brave enough to give his name, not to discourage, not to you know say anything disparaging to people who want to be anonymous. Perfectly acceptable if you'd like to do that. He says, uh, can the rabbi share his thoughts on primarily following Rambam Versus Shulchan Aruch. That was from Mor Shalom. And the other question was phrased as follows. It is clear that Harambam is a major influence on Rav Dweck. I'm glad that's clear. However, on questions of Halakha, Rav Dweck has said that Sfaradim should stick to Shulchan Aruch and Ashkenazim to Ramah, uh, i.e. conventional Halakha. I, don't, I, I never say that, but I suppose that's summing up what he, what he heard me say. Uh, as opposed to everyone switching to Harambam for practical Halakha. Why, do, why does Rav think this? Thanks so much in advance. Okay, so the way that I understand this question is why are we not all just doing what the Rambam wrote and finish, right? I mean, you know, if that's what's appropriate, then that's what's appropriate. So in order to be able to answer that, we have to question, first of all, is that indeed appropriate, <laughs> right? I mean, why do, do people think that that's appropriate? So the first thing that I'll say is the basis for considering the question in the first place I would imagine lies, right, what's assumed in these questions, I would imagine lies in the difference between the way that Harambam was posek the halachot in the Mishneh Torah and the way that Maran Ben Yosef Karu was posek the halachot in Shohan Aruch. And there is a very different approach that either is taking and a very different aim that either is taking. So Harambam writes clearly that the 
the establishment of his halachot and the Mishneh Torah are simply to take the rulings of the Bedin of the Rov Hachmei Israel, and in some cases the Bedin Agadol, uh, that were uh, uh, that spread to the jurisdiction of the entirety of the people, to put them into legal clarity, right? To say this is the law, because when a person studies Talmud. Um, or the other works of the, of the hachamim, for that matter, that deal with halacha, it is not straightforward to be able to read it through and be able to know clearly without question what the halacha is. So Harambam's aim was to distill the halachic uh, decisions or the, the, the halachic conclusions of those aspects into the Mishneh Torah in a clear and, and orderly form. So that's what he did. So that means that the establishments of Harambam and Mishneh Torah are what he understood the conclusions of the Talmud to be. And I'm going to emphasize what he understood the conclusions of the Talmud to be. Now, there are those, uh, perhaps I am included in that, although I probably the Rambamniks, you know, the staunch Rambamniks would not include me in their in their circles, feel very strongly that there are, there, there are Rambamniks that feel very strongly that there is no alternative to what Harambam understood, right? One, if this is how Harambam understood the sugya, then that is the sugya, and that's it. And there's nothing else to discuss, right? So however it is that the Tosafot might have understood the sugya and the law that came out of it, or the other Rishonim and their studies of the, the sugya and how the law came out of it, well, I mean, you know, who's as consistent as Harambam? Who has written across the board on all of it and, 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 and uh, you know, a, a, a con- in a conglomeration as Harambam has done in sweeping the entirety of the works of the Achamim and putting them forth, forth, right? These are the arguments. And the truth of the matter is these are arguments that have some level of weight. I mean, not that, you know, the, some will listen to that and say, well, who, you know, who is Rabbi Dweck to say that, that it has weight? I mean, it is what it is. And it's supposed to be that we follow it. But, but nonetheless, for the sake of answering the question, it's important to understand why one would ask this question from what perspective? That, and I'm simply explaining how it is that I understand the question, right? Could be that the question wasn't meant in this way, but nonetheless, here's how I'm answering it. So if Harambam's uh, assertions, right, his conclusions are his understandings of the halachic conclusions of the sugyot and the Gemara and the Talmud and the other works that he included in, in the rulings, well, then, yes, that's fine, and it's very likely that he had Mesorah for how it is that he studied the Sugyot, and very likely that it might have been rooted in the Geonim. Indeed, it's quite uh, quite clear that much of it was rooted in the Geonim. So it's very hard to be able to negate that. However, as I said, nonetheless, it still comes down to the, that core point, and that is, it's his opinion. Right, and it's and it's or it's his tradition, or it's his learning, or it's his mesora, whatever it is that you want to say. But it is, it is still lose. It loses to a degree, right? Concrete, indisputable alternatives to how it is at home. Now, some people would agree that what I just said is not true. No, it is concrete and indisputable. But uh, nonetheless, Rabim Bigdolim Israel did argue and dispute, and understand the sugyot differently. Uh, and so there is, there, and for that matter, the Talmud, if it put itself forward uh, and didn't clarify, right, how it is, or there, there was room for people to err, and significant people might have erred if they, if Harambam was the only way and they disagreed with Harambam, well, then the Talmud isn't working, right? There's something, there's something missing in it, right? But the alternative is to say the Talmud can be understood in certain areas, differently by different hachamim and how it is that they, how they, how they kind of come to the conclusions of the Talmud. Now, what did Maran do? What did Rabbi Yosef Karo do? Rabbi Yosef Karo was concerned about a different issue. He wasn't concerned about distilling the law of the hachamim into a clear, digestible fashion. Maran was concerned about the diversity of practice and the ripping apart of Klal Israel as a result of the multitudinal practices that were going on. So he writes in Akdamah of the Beit Yosef, it's no longer two Torot because there was complaint in Talmud about Beit Hillel and Shammai that they made the Torah as though it was two Torot. It says, no, it's like 10 Torot, more, because everybody's doing a whole bunch of different things. And so what he wanted to do, his aim was to unify practice. So what did Maran do? Maran had an assumption inherent in his work. And the assumption inherent in his work was that there were capacities in the Talmud to understand its conclusions differently, and therefore convened a virtual Bet Din. 
in order to be able to establish the law. So if he's convening a virtual Bedin in order to establish the law, which is not this Bedin by, de- by, by manner of its, of its convening by dead people, right, is not responsive and, and deliberating, right? The deliberations have already happened. They've already rendered their rulings. The Rif Rambam and the, and the Rosh uh, have already rendered their rulings. And so I'm going to choose like two out of the three if they agree is what Maran says. And all of that is in order to be able to establish a unified practice. And the only thing that allows Maran to be able to do this really, which is unspoken, is to accept alternative approaches to understanding the Talmud and ruling on them, right? So now one has two options. One can either say that Maran was wrong in that assertion, right? And therefore reject completely the Shulchan Aruf, right? Which is what one would have to do, right? Or accept that Maran was uh, recognized that the Talmud could be interpreted in, in different ways, not a free-for-all, right? There are, there are rules and systems in which a, 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 you know, the sugyot and the hachamim are studied and, and uh, understood, but nonetheless that there are alternatives and that those alternatives are valid, right? Now, how do I know which one to choose? So that, so that Maran decided he's going to establish a Bedin and rule in that way in order to be able to unify practice, and that's how he saw. So as far as I'm concerned, right, uh, Maran is asserting something that I, I, I don't see a, a, a uh, what, what do you call it, a, um, uh, an ironclad argument against. I don't see an ironclad argument against. It. And therefore, the next level of the answer to this question is, right? what does the Am do? And this concept of Kabbalat Maran, right? that Chacham Avadiyah always talks about, Horot Maran. So, well, I mean, it's certainly true to a certain degree, right? I mean, there's, there's no question about the fact that, the, you know, the Adot Mizrach and the Sfaradim pretty much across the board recognize the Shuchan Aruch perhaps to varying severity or varying intensity uh, as an ultimate or a certainly a very high authority in terms of how it is that we follow halacha nowadays. So especially if Maran writes something in Aruch, and the majority of people behave in the way that Maran has written in the Shohan Aruch, I see it appropriate to follow that way. If it's the way that your family has done, your community does, and so on and so forth, you as an individual, I would not suggest that you pull yourself away and do only how Harambam writes to do, if that's how the, the, the Tzibur does, because the Tzibur has, has basis upon which they, be, they act and behave. Now, one might say that, uh, and even Maran writes this, Maran says that, listen, if you had a minhag that you've been practicing before, that, you know, I write the halachai, well, then keep practicing your minhag, right? And you do that as well. These components of the, the maya'ama davar of Kalal Israel, what does the amdu of Kalal Israel, is significant. It isn't right? It doesn't trump all things. Yeah, I mean, sometimes there's another question over here. Sometimes there's, uh, you know, things that the community does that is against halakha. There's sometimes things that the community does that isn't really appropriate uh, halakha. And that, that is not strong. The fact the community does it doesn't mean that it's strong enough in order to be able to push away halakha. So clearly this is going to get into detailed nuance and it requires a great deal of scholarship in order to be able to have a clear understanding of but that's why I say what I say. So I hope that explains why I tend to tell people that, yes, of course, they can and should follow Shohan Aruch in the places that we've, we've accepted Shohan Aruch. And, uh, and so to other poskim. I don't think it, it doesn't, the Torah didn't, didn't end with the Shohan Aruch, right? Also, there's, there's, other, there's other poskim, there's other ways of, of ruling, there's new things that come out that we have to be able to follow. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that we need to be able to recognize. I mean, one of the reasons that Maran didn't follow Harambam directly, which he actually has to address, right? Which is important, right? And he doesn't say that I should, I wanted to follow Harambam because he has the right rulings in the Talmud. He said, I want to follow Harambam because he's the Posekam Hamufursam, right? He's the most well-known. Yeah, but but he said there was a gap of 500 years between him and me. So I have to fill in the 500 year gap and I would have to do a lot of heavy lifting in order to be able to do that. So instead I'm using the tour and so on and so forth. So that's why. I will, however, say, and I'm probably going to make people frustrated with this. All of that said, if a person wants to do everything 
that is written by Harambam. According to Harambam, I think that that person is, is, is allowed to do that. And not only allowed, by all means, a person can, can follow that. Right? Would I suggest it? No. But if a person came and asked me, I'm determined. That's what I want to do. Can I do that? Yes, a person can do that. But I would say the same with Shohan Aruch. If a person wanted to follow Shohan Aruch across the board and do exactly what Maran writes in Shohan Aruch, I think that person has the allowance to do so. If that's what they choose to do. But that is not obligated. It is not something a person must do. And there is a reason why Kalal Israel in general developed the way that it developed. And I think, and, and I will say, and this may end up being with another question, that although, like I said, it is not ironclad in Chok Yavor, what the general faithful population of Kalal Israel does is not to be taken lightly. And I'll explain why uh, later. Okay. Well, we're we're halfway through and we've got two questions down. So that's that's good. Um, let's see here. Is saying Tehilim, e.g., for someone ill, effective? And also from this same question, same questioner, what are Tehilim? What is Sefer Tehilim's place in Tanakh? And this comes from Mord Maman, our dear Mord in Manchester, United Kingdom. Okay, so Mord, if you say effective, right, these, a lot of the wording here is not terribly clear, but when you say effective, right, what does it mean? Is it effective? Like, does it work? Is that, I imagine you, that's your, your question, right? Does saying Tehilim for someone who is ill work? Yeah. Well, and, and if by work you mean heal them, yeah. Well, I mean, well, more, here you are. I see that you're over there. Why, why don't you unmute if you can and, and, and elaborate a little bit on your question so that I don't spend all of the time answering something that you didn't know. Sure. Thank you, Rabbi. Yeah, quite often you see nowadays the idea that when someone's uh, unwell, God forbid, yeah. um, status will come up. Uh, so-and-so right. is, is, is seriously unwell. Say something to him now. Yeah. It's, it's such a practice you know, what would the mechanisms of such a practice be, so to speak? Okay. Is, is that what to him? But what would the mechanisms be if it were actually effective in helping the situation? That's your question? Yeah, yeah. I mean... That's a good, it's an important can, question. We can make it that Yeah, that can be the question. I mean, you know... Okay, so, we can, so yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll offer, I'll offer something. If I missed it, you'll tell me if I'm, if you're left feeling terribly empty, then, you know, you, let me see. So... So I think everybody on here probably knows the Rambam, right? That everybody's thinking of. Because Rambam writes in El Chota that it's a problem to say Tehillim for somebody who's ill, right? So I'll read you, uh, I'll read you that Rambam if I can manage to pull it up. It's in El Chota Aleph, Let's see if I can find it here. Not that, not that, not that. Yeah. Okay. So Rambam writes as follows. He says, If a person kind of says incantations on a wound, and reads a pasuk in the Torah as if it's an incantation, right? In other words, as if saying these words are going to fix the wound, heal the wound. Okay. And so too, if a person says things so that a child should, uh, you know, calm down, or for that matter, a person puts a sefer Torah or tefillin or mezuzah, or whatever it is, on a baby, so the baby should sleep. Rambam says, He doesn't just say it's a sur. He says, It's not enough. Right? It's not enough that they, by doing so, by, in, in, by the incantations, of Pesukim, as if these words are going to somehow create a healing vibe, right, or a healing mechanism on these things, it's not enough that they have, by doing that, made themselves into Menachashim and Hoverim, which are in Isur Deoraita, right? Not only that, they can be included in people that basically reject and do not believe in Torah. Why? There's very harsh things to say. Because what they do is they take the Torah and make it as something that heals physical bodies, right? Rather than what it's meant to do by the study of it to heal the soul, spiritually heal us. As it says 
in So this is what what Harambam writes, um, and then he says, but a person who's healthy, right? That if a person who's healthy reads Tehillim, so that the zikhut of having of having read these things uh, will keep him well and in good standing. And be secured from anything bad happening to him, that's permitted, which implies that everything that Harambam just said is Asur, right? Which, I mean, the fact that he says it's an Isur Deoraita of Menachashim and that they're Bichlal Kofrim Torah, that's a serious problem. So now, still, it doesn't answer your question entirely, Mord, right? Because I have to talk about both sides of it, because Harambam does say that if a person says it for the protection of not getting sick, that's Mutar. Right, so clearly there's something different about it. Right, there's something different about saying it when you're healthy in order to be able to bring a certain element of protection, as opposed to saying it in order to be able to heal what is wounded or or or, or physically damaged. Okay, so first thing that I'll say is, you know, people say when 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 they read this Rambam or when they hear from this Rambam, they say, well, it's what we do today. So this is an example of what I was just saying. What's well, what everybody does. So that's in this case. It's not valid what everybody does, in my opinion. I don't think it's valid what everybody does. Here, Harambam is saying things that are so hamur. Right? He's saying it's not enough that it's nisur deoraita, right? I mean, people are nizhar and nisurim derabanan that are much less in their severity than this. Yeah, they're, they're so careful in nisurim derabanan that are much less in their severity than this. This is nisur deoraita of menachashim and, and, and hoverim. And Harambam says they're kofrim Torah. So you talk about being mahmir. Should this not be something that a person should be mahmir on? There was a rabbi recently, good friend, a friend of mine, a, a, a close a friend of mine, rabbi, and he saw that I don't carry because uh, I'm noheg not to carry even in an eruv usually, and unless there's a tzorich gadol or whatever it is, and. And he said, well, well, you know, what other things are you mahmir on, Rabbi? Because he didn't see that I was mahmir particularly on a lot of other things when he was spending time to spend Shabbat with me. I said to him, I- I'm pretty much mahmir on uh, Sefer Amada. And the reason I, I-, I mahmir on Sefer Amada is because they carry a Torah, they study a Torah. It's Abu Torah, how it is that we are in terms of our growth and treating other people. Those are things I'm mahmir on. And this, I'm mahmir on. Why? Because when I hear Harambam saying to me that this is it's not something I want to play around with. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, okay, there's other people who do it. So in this case, in my opinion, it is a terrible problem to be able to do it. What is the other side of it, right, that Harambam is talking about? That if a bari reads it, what is zechut So it's important to understand what Harambam, the first part of it Literally, Harabam was saying are incantations. So anytime, if a person reads Tehillim as though it's a spell book, right? In other words, if I say these words backwards, forwards, three times, and so on and so forth, that somehow these things will work for me. It's Asur in any instance, Bari, Hole, whatever the case may be, it's Asur to do that. Why? Because I'm trying to, to, to say some kinds of things that will magically help me. And Harabam says very clearly, what he says with regards to the Bari is that the zikhut of the Kriya, what is the zikhut of the Kriya, the, the merit of the Kriya, what is this, 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 the, the zakai nature of reading Tehillim? Well, you ask in your question, what are Tehillim? And Tehillim is precisely what it is that this, the name suggests. They're praises of God. And they're beautiful, beautiful, eloquent, clear, multifaceted praises of God. And they are praises that are so wonderful that when we read them, we feel like the one who wrote them. Yeah, we'll accept that David Amelich was the chief editor, yeah? That, that, that he spoke words that our hearts felt, but perhaps we don't have the words to say. That, you speak these things before God. You have a knowledge at the very least of what you're saying, right? And that's something that I always tell people. That's what I. That's something I always tell people. That if you're going to read Tehillim, at least know what you're reading. 
And if you can read praises, and yes, uh, Mr. David is asking me, is reading the same as learning? No, it's not the same as learning. I'm not saying learn Tehillim. I'm saying read Tehillim. Read the words. Understand what you're saying. And from the pure reading and understanding what you're saying, if your mind is on the words that you're saying, you're talking to God. And you're talking to God in Sheba. You think that when you talk to God in Sheba, that doesn't stand as a zehut for the person? And of course that protects a person. So that's mutar. Of course it's mutar to do. Even if your intention is that I want to keep connected to Gadosh Baruch so that I hold well. It's not the highest level of the reading, right? You should read it just because you want to praise a Kadosh Baruch But if that's how you begin, so good, wonderful. There's nothing, nothing wrong with that. And so what I will suggest is, right, to be melamed zechut on rov klal Yisrael, because I'm afraid to say something negative about rov klal Yisrael and this behavior that they do, right? If they do it in incantation, it's really they're doing something wrong. But in general, what I tell people to do is, if you're asked to read Tehillim for somebody who's unwell, read it. Understand what you're saying and say it as a shebach that that shebach, hopefully in your consciousness of the person that's sick, should be able to be zuchet to, to help them in whatever way, but not as an incantation. And I hope you can understand the difference of what it is that I'm saying, because I'm making a subtle difference, but it's a very, very important difference. And I think it makes a, the difference between being a menachesh and a hover haver and a chasvshalom kovera Torah to being a person that's helping a fellow person through their relationship. That is not manipulative. So I'll leave it. I'll leave it at that. Thank you for the. Is that okay, Mort? Brilliant. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thank you very, much. very good. Somebody asked here an interesting question. I may be missing the question, or there may be a deeper aspect of this question that I'm that I'm not picking up on. But it seems to me to be fairly straightforward. So he asks, "How does Rambam's worldview?" This is from Reuven Peskin in Brooklyn. The hood. How does Rambam's worldview assign significance to specific angels like Michael and Gabriel? That's an interesting question, right? How does Rambam's worldview? Rambam writes explicitly about the angels in Hilchot Yisudei Torah. Uh, the question is, what is Michael and Gabriel, right? So clearly, Hachamim recognize them as Malachim, right? The Hachamim talk about them all the time, and it. It would seem, as the way that the Hachamim point them out, that Michael and Gabriel are chief malachim, right? They're 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 top level, uh, top ranking mal- mal- malachim. And Arabam uh, writes in Elchot Yisudei Torah, Perik Bet Halachazayin, that the highest level of malachim are called Hayot. So I would assume that, as far as Arabam is concerned, he would consider Michael and Gabriel Hayot Kodesh. And that's really all I can say about that. It seems. Uh, fairly straightforward. Um, next question from Neil Highland or Nisim Highland in uh, in the West Midlands here in the UK. So Neil asks, uh, must we believe anything as Jews? And how do we acquire and develop, justify, legitimate our beliefs? Uh, so the first part of this, right, you know, m- m- must we must we believe anything? It all it all depends on what what is meant by that question. Again, right? What is the meaning of that question? Is that is that is that is uh, is Neil on by any chance? Hi. Ah, Neil, here you are, Neil. Um, so, Neil, I know that you asked your question based on the book by Menachem Kellner, right? But yeah. do you care to do you care to articulate or maybe specify a little bit more what you mean? Because I, I'll, I'll ask you. I'm assuming that when you ask me this question, you're implying, and I could be wrong in my assumption, that you're implying is it punishable? Right. In other words, is belief punishable? But you can you can help me understand if if I'm missing what you're saying. I was just interested in how we can justify any particular belief. But when we think about it, and when when I sort of doubt, when I'm a sort of skeptic, how right. can I? Yeah, it's okay. So that's different. So you're not asking, is it punishable? No, no. You're saying, can the beliefs be justified? Yeah. How, personally, how can I? Right. So develop? yeah. So look, the first thing I will say is, let's recognize their beliefs, Neil. Right. Yeah. So, so on a certain level, I'm accepting something that I don't have the capacity to be able to prove. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. The next question is, well, is what one believes or is what we believe rational? Right. In other words, can I say that I believe this thing because I don't have proof for this thing, but I nonetheless, it's reasonable for me to believe. Right. And I would argue, I would argue, although, I mean, this is, again, it's a whole discussion, right? Because we're only treating these things very, very uh, uh, superficially here. I would argue that at least as far as the Rambam is concerned, I think in terms of how, what it is the Torah, you know, asks us, what does the Torah ask us to believe? The Torah asks us to believe HaKadosh Baruch Hu, right? I mean, that's the bottom line. Uh, the Torah asks us to believe HaKadosh Baruch Hu, not to believe in, in other gods other than HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So, I mean, if we recognize that what we mean by that is the, you know, the precursor to all that is, it's just the acceptance that there was a precursor to all that is, and what must that precursor be in our capacity to be able to understand to whatever futile, you know, attempt that might be, right? Okay, so then there's reasons, there's reasoned, there's reasoned belief around that entity, right? In other words, my my alternative is to say that there is no precursor, right? And, okay, well... Are the mental calisthenics uh, less severe or or complex to believe the one over the other? Yeah. I think one would be hard-pressed to be able to make the argument, I think, either way. So that's where we start. And then if we were to look at, you know, for example, Harambam's assertion of the the Sodot, right, many, what are the core beliefs of Klaus, right? So those have a very logical progression. So they're not just like a bunch of beliefs that are gathered up and thrown into a shoebox and say, okay, these are them, yeah, right? Yeah. The way that I teach them, I usually show the, the clear logical progression where one suggests the next, if we're going to take this system as a system, yeah. right? Um, which I don't have time to be able to go through now, but I do think that it is reasoned, right? In terms of how it is that they're, how, how it is that they're point put out. I, I, on the back of that, I will say that outside of those very core things, right, those very, very, there is very little, right, that we insist that a person must believe um, or believe strongly that a person must believe. Uh, and yes, overall, uh, I think that the traditional, uh, authentic Jewish view is that there should be reason to the belief, right? In other words, gotcha. that the, the belief should be based on reason. I I do believe, and this may be uh, perhaps beyond the pale a bit to some to some to some that the assertion that might be held in certain certain circles that belief in non reasonable elements, um, especially the highly unreasonable elements, is a virtue, is the result of Christian influence. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, I'm interested so, in that. Yeah. So I don't, I don't. What I would suggest to you, if you're interested in reading, just on the back of that, although it doesn't directly address it, but it certainly addresses the heavy influence of Christianity on the Western world, whether people th- think they were influenced or not, is a book by Tom Holland, not Spider Man, the other Tom Holland, the historian, called Dominion. Dem- Dominion. Yeah. He just recently put it out. I'm in the middle of it, and I think it's it's very, very, very well written. But it's a very important book, actually. Very Let me say the name again. It's Tom, Tom. Tom Holland, Dominion. God, yeah, I've got it here. Thanks. Gosh, very I'll important, very important book for us today. Yeah, lovely. Okay. Okay. Alrighty, moving right along. This is from Raphael in Montreal, Canada. Okay, Rafael, I hope you're doing well. And thank you for, for the question. There are, I think there are two questions here. So the first question is, how should we structure our limud to make it realistic, meaningful, constant, and evolve at the same time? Uh, great. It's a great question. Um, so this question, I'll repeat the question. How should we structure our limud to make it realistic, meaningful, constant, and evolve at the same time? So this goes back to kind of what I talk about ad nauseum when I talk about learning. And that is, as the Hachamim say, Always, the words of Torah should be in your hands as principles, right? Principles. What that means is that the nature of Torah study should fundamentally focus on concepts on principles, on frameworks, 
of thought structure, right? So whether that's the principles of halakha or the principles of nibu'ah or the principles of, uh, of avodah, of tefillah, so on and so forth. First, always start with the principles, right? Even the principles of belief in God, there are principles to it, yeah? The learning should always look towards principles. Why? Because if you are learning in terms of principles, right? Well, then it's certainly meaningful because the principles give context to everything. And as we've I've said many times in in so many of my shiurim, I mean, it's one of these are one of the cardinal points I think that I put out all the time is that meaning lies in context. Yeah, you can always isolate a detail, and by isolating a detail, you will always isolate it from its meaning. It's the context that provides meaning. So the principle in this sense, in terms of conceptualization, is the contextual treatment of whatever detailed information fills in the, the, the principles or, or fits into the principled domain, right? The principled domain. So it's meaningful because it provides you the meaning, right? It gives you the framework for how it is that you should think and how what these things, you know, what color these things take on. It's constant because the principles by their nature usually stand the test of time because they are not detailed enough that they are easily shaken, right? But they are they are formed enough that they can be recognized as and applied in various ways to the developments and changes of time. So it's another thing that we do in order to be able to allow for constancy and therefore allows for evolution of ideas, because if I'm taking the concepts and I'm looking at the world through new eyes with the consciousness of the concept, then I'm always able to respond and replenish and and re uh, and and innovate, right, in my approach while still remaining faithful to the ideas, right, in their core elements themselves, which is on a certain level, very much the nature of Torah Shebechtav and Torah Shebaal Peh, right? The Torah Shebechtav itself is a series of principles. Right? No mitzvah in and of, on its own is, uh, is practical, right? Is practically, is, is practically executable, right? How am I supposed to do any of them without asking more questions, right? And understanding the specific applications of the ideas, right? Every single one of the mitzvot are essentially a principle. And that's what the Torah Shebechtav, that's why Torah Shebechtav is essentially unchanging. It's there, it's not to be tampered with. The words have to be kept intact no matter how, you know, in every single generation. But the question of how it is that I understand these words, I mean, I was just reading, uh, talking to my dear uh, colleague, Rabbi Dr. Rafi Zarum the other day, and, and we're sharing with each other the fact that we heard from Rabbi Sachs, both each of us, that he was saying, you know, when he got older, he read the, the Chumash, he read the Torah, the Parashah, and he saw things just as a result of being older that he didn't see when he was younger because he didnn't see, he didn't have the same eyes as, at, at 50 or 60 that he did when he was 20 or 30, right? So these can obviously be applied in so many different scenarios, but the concept, I hope, the principle, right, that I'm teaching is there. And I think, therefore, it makes it realistic because it always gives you an opportunity to be able to deal with what's really happening in the world. Right, and you're not afraid. That's one of the reasons, by the way. It's precisely one of the main reasons why I started my podcast, Humans Being, which I'm incidentally recording the second season of. I'm in the middle of recording the second season. I just recorded, uh, thanks to Matthew Miller, another member of our Chabura. I just had a phenomenal discussion with Professor Hod Lipman uh, about AI and robotics and things like that. So, I mean, yes, uh, you can approach these things from place of Torah as well, if you have the principles. The whole point of the podcast is to be able to show that the principles of Torah can be applied to whatever it is that's going on out there in the world. So, yes, realistic, meaningful, constant, and evolve. And then he asks, are we planning on publishing a book on the Purim Amalek idea of existentialism? Uh, we are not, because we... Uh, would have to write it. And uh, we are writing a book right now uh, that is not directly focusing on that, but those concepts will be in the book. So I hope that, uh, you know, that will that will come out uh, before we all die. Okay. Let's see here. So some of these questions I didn't get quite, yeah. 
Okay, so this is a question. This is a big one. This is a doozy of a question, as they say, from Sion in New Jersey. And Sion asks, what do you think of the current state of world Jewry? Where do you think we're headed in the next 10 years? What do you think the needs to be more or less of? Oh, what do you think there needs to be more or less of? Yeah. So this is a, like, this is a very big question. So I'll take it bit by bit. What do you think of the current state of world Jewry? You know, thank you for narrowing that down. Um, look, because it's a very broad question, I will give a very broad answer. I, on the one hand, have profound hope for the Jewish people. I have tikva for us. And I believe that we have made it through till now in, in what should have been a thousand times insurmountable odds, right? Insurmountable. And here we are. And, uh, you know, we're sitting here and talking about our Torah and our thoughts and our beliefs and our laws and, and our mitzvot. And, uh, you know, we, we, we do this and we fail because of its ubiquitousness to recognize the massive miracle that it is that we could even have just a session like this, right? And, and, and talk about ourselves this way and the things that we do this way. It's just, I mean, I, I genuinely, it's like there is no bigger miracle that our people have ever seen than something like this, right? And it's, uh, it's astounding, really, that we're able to do it. So the first and foremost, I have a, a profound hope, right? I, I was going to say sense of hope. It's not even, it is hope. I have profound hope for the Jewish people. And I don't think that we need to control God in order to be able to get us through. I think that we need to, on the back of that, right, being that I have this hope, what is our responsibility? I think that, um, I honestly believe that we're really trying to find our way right now. And if I were to liken the time that we are currently in to any other time in history, I would liken it to the time that is essentially illustrated in the book of Shofetim. Because in the book of Shofetim, it says towards the end, in those days, right? there was no king, which is precisely our days, because right? everybody's waiting for the melech. Right? <laughs> the, whole, the whole thing is when Mashiach comes, when Mashiach comes, when Mashiach comes, well, we need the Mashiach. You know, that's so much of the dialogue, right? And melech Israel. Every person is doing what is yashar be'enav. And yashar be'enav does not mean ish asher yachpotz yaseh. Right? It didn't say that. Everybody did whatever they wanted. It's not what it says. It says everybody did what they thought was straight. What they th- thought was, was proper in their eyes. And that's really where we're at right now. And so the time of the Shofetim was quite unstructured, quite diverse. It was all over the place, right? At certain times, one Shevet was in charge, and other times, another Shevet was in charge. And, you know, but there was this, there was very few times where the entire nation coalesced into unity, but they did at certain points. And I find that to be the situation with us. Right? We, are, we are really at this point in time trying to coalesce into unity. It doesn't look like it because it's so chaotic, right? But it's kind of like looking at evolution and seeing like these, you know, if you were to look at the process of evolution over the, you know, the geologic time that it occurred, it would be very, very difficult to be able to recognize that, you know, we were going to build cities like London and New York, you know, out, out of that, that there would be these these entities that developed and evolved called human beings with the complexities of the brains that we have and ended up building systems that we it's like, it's like, kind of give me a break from amoeba. This is what you're going to end up getting. So, so a, that's my hope and B that's my, the way that I look at the, the, I tend to pan out. Right. So that doesn't mean that I, I, I don't see things in the Jewish world that, that frustrate me, that make me angry, that, uh, that caused me tremendous, tremendous disdain. It's all there. I see it. But I don't feel, when I was younger, I was much more entrenched in the details and I got much more upset about it. I'm a little older now and I don't know how I'll be when I'm a lot older, but I'm a little older now. And I, I, 
I see that this is a chaotic development towards good things. Uh, I don't know if I'll see it in my lifetime. I don't know if we'll see it in in 10 generations. I, I don't know. But, you know, things develop. And I think that they are moving towards tikkun. I really do. And I, and I do see indications that they, things are moving towards tikkun, towards completion, rectification, wholeness. I absolutely see that. Uh, and I don't have time now to go into why it is that I see it, but I, I absolutely see it. And it may very well be that we will get much worse even than we are now and break even to further uh, bits than we are now. But remember, there's a Gemara that says, in Ben David Ba, in Gemara Sanhedrin, the, the, the son of David will not come, obviously referring to the Melech that we don't have, right? Will not arrive, will not come, until every system, every structure, every framework that we have that gives us meaning to the world uh, decomposes, or not decomposes, but, but it deconstructed, right, is the better word, is deconstructed into its isolated parts. And when you deconstruct things into their isolated parts, it looks really, really bad. But it's it's... It's a trick, right, to kind of look at those things and think that it's curtains. It's never curtains. Never, never, never. I mean, I mean, if our existence now is not indication to every single person who is watching this, thinking this, or what, or otherwise, uh, then they're asleep, in my opinion. I mean, they're just really asleep and so uh, myopic in their view that they just can't get it. They don't get that this is a story, right, that this is a saga that we are living, that is developing, and we are deeply privileged to be in the place that we are right now, to be able to have the hindsight that we have that none of our ancestors had, right? To be able to see it all the way that we see it, it's like immensely privileged, yeah, to be able to see this stuff. It's a miraculous time that we're in, but we're finding things falling apart. And I think that that's what people miss when they look out in the world in general. Forget about the Jewish people, just the world in general, right? I mean, everybody's complaining about the structures falling apart. And you got all the conservatives saying, oh, it's horrible. Everybody is, you know, uh, where are the good old days. And so, yeah, okay, so the conservatives can sit and say and lament all of the things that are falling apart and that we're losing the, the values and structures and so on that we had. But remember the Parashat Shavua. The Parashat Shavua is that everybody had to die before anyone was able to get into Eretz Yisrael, right? People have to die. You know, that's Max Planck said that, right? New and cutting edge scientific ideas do not take take acceptance by people learning about them and accepting them, but by the people dying and new young people growing up within them, right? So when we're looking out at a world and saying, what the heck? I mean, there's not even men and women anymore, right? Gender's out the window, uh, the finances out the window, all of the economic systems out the window, everybody... The whole sense of self is out the window. No, it's not out the window. It's just being deconstructed completely. And it's a very scary time. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not minimizing the fact that it's scary to see deconstruction. Right? It's one of the reasons, by the way, that the Torah says that the Leviim are not allowed to see the dismantling of the, uh, of the, of the Mishkan. Kebala'at HaKodesh, right? Because they see Kebala'at HaKodesh Vametu, right? It'll be so hard for them to see the Kodesh being dismantled into these, these component parts and packed up into luggage. I mean, what happened to the great place of the Shekhinah? Oh, they shouldn't see it. Don't, don't look. Don't look. And that's what we're looking at. We're literally looking at the complete dismantling of all of the Kodesh. Right, so it's very, very hard for us to deal with. But what I'm suggesting is abide, yeah, have faith in Hakadosh Baruch Hu that He's moving His world in ways that Lo Darkechem Derachai. Your ways are not my ways, and I have very interesting ways of doing things. So settle down, grab some popcorn, and uh, and have hope. And on that note, I think is where I will end the questions and answer session. And on the ending, I want to uh, take a moment to tell all of you who are on tonight, who may be listening to the recording, who are passing through the 
wonderful virtual walls of the Bet Midrash of the Chabura. to you for taking time to be part of it, for dedicating yourself to Talmud Torah, for engaging in holding some frameworks for yourselves in a world where all of the frameworks are being, you know, uh, torn apart, from dedicating yourselves and learn, to learning the principles. Hashem Yishmerechem Ha'yechem Ayisher Ha'yechem Le'oraita you should always have the strength to be able to continue learning and growing and may your Talmud Torah not just be, you know, in the air, that it should be that it should be to learn and to teach, to keep and to do. That's why we learn, to be able to engage in our Avodah with HaKadosh Baruch Hu and our own growth towards our Avodah. And so Yihiratzon, that uh, the Chabura itself, that everybody involved in it should have great zechut for their for their dedication to wanting to to be yodeat Hashem. At the bottom line, that's what it is. That they're all that all of, everyone is mivakshe Hashem, and that they too should see bracha and all of their study and their own personal growth. And I want to take a moment, of course, to thank uh, Sina uh, for all of his tremendous work and guidance, and everybody else who's who's involved. Sina has uh, recently begun to delegate some responsibilities. Thank goodness. So Hashem Ishmerel Vehayel, Rav Ohad, all of the shiurim that you host and that you care and that you take care of, and and, and everybody. There's if I start, then I I'll I'll I'll, I'll miss. So I, I just want to tell everyone that I know that you're doing what you're doing. And I'm very grateful that you're doing what you're doing, and I just wish you continued Hatslaharaba as a kim bruchim. And I look forward to next season. Bezat Hashem. And until then, have a wonderful summer, and stay tuned. Thank you so much, Hacham. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. Wednesday is going to be our last class, and then uh, we're going to start our new curriculum. So make sure to sign up for that. Uh, Tell everyone, thank you for coming. Thank you.